And so I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the Gospel of Luke, to Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, then there is a Bible in the pew in front of you. The Gospel of Luke is in the New Testament. And this morning, our focus will be on the doctrine that is summarized for us in a document called the Heidelberg Catechism from Lord's Day 18. The catechism is divided into 52 units, and we call them Lord's Days so that you can work through them through the course of a year. Specifically, question 46, and this is in the Forms and Prayers book on page 218 and 19. But I'll simply read it to you. Question 46 of the Catechism asks, What do you mean by saying he, that is Jesus, ascended into heaven? And the answer that it gives is that Christ, while his disciples watched, was taken up from the earth into heaven and remains there on our behalf until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. This, like the doctrines that we've looked at in the past several weeks, is one of the core Christian doctrines, and it is one that cuts against our ordinary experience. And yet it is of tremendous value to our faith and our practical Christian life. Now this doctrine is based on many texts, and we'll look at some of them this morning, but our main text begins at Luke 24, verse 50. Hear together with me the word. And he led them out as far as Bethany, And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's ask the Lord to bless us even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would meet us in it this morning, that you would work in us, first, attentiveness, second, understanding, third, deep faith, and as necessary, repentance, a turning away from this world, a turning to you in joy and worship. We pray that you would please go beyond the things that are spoken merely, but cause them to echo within. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do minister to your people. We look forward to it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage has a number of parallel passages in the New Testament. For instance, at the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke recounts again this episode of the disciples watching Jesus as he departs from earth as we know it and goes into glory. Our little section here, these few verses, contain two wonders. The first of them is obvious, and that is that a human being, not simply the soul, but also the body of Jesus Christ, is received into heaven. That is a glory, especially as you start to think what it means that a body can be in heaven. We don't usually think of heaven in that way, do we? We often think of heaven in terms of just our spirits all being there. 
And yet it says that Jesus is received bodily into heaven. That's a wonder. There's a second wonder, and arguably the second wonder is even more astounding. Because there are instances in Scripture where other people were received into heaven as well bodily. Genesis chapter 5 tells of a man named Enoch long ago who walked with God and then was not. And that's enigmatic, but the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, explains that a little bit. In Hebrews 11, verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. And so we see that God can bring the body into glory. Now there's a difference with Jesus in his position, in his purpose, and in the degree of glory that he has. But the perhaps greater wonder in this passage is the response of the disciples, that they rejoice to see Jesus leave and depart from them for the rest of their mortal lives. If you know the story at all, then you know that prior to Jesus' crucifixion, there is nothing they dread more than the idea of being separated from him. Peter says, I would rather die than be separated from you. And yet now they are rejoicing, and it's a joy that sticks with them. We ought not, we must not think of the apostles going as these dreary people into the world. They've been sent Jonah-like out, and they're just really disappointed that they have to carry this message, that somebody's got to do it. They are overflowing with joy. And the turning point is this moment here, where they see Jesus ascend to glory. And I want to ask you, whether or not that has been your experience. And I don't mean at every single moment that we have the same degree of joy, but this is something that we return to. Have you looked upon Christ by faith in such a way, understanding where he is now bodily, and that knowledge has then produced by the Spirit in you a heartfelt sense of joy and worship? If not... Or maybe it's been too long. The Holy Spirit this morning is calling you to look upon the ascended Lord, to understand the ascension, as well as the benefits, the blessings that flow to us from it. This should not be a one-time thing. This should be an everyday thing. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Consider this doctrine under two main headings. First, we're going to look at the basic meaning of it. But then second, we're going to look at some of the blessings, several blessings that flow to you that we are to lay hold of regularly and especially as we partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, to connect what we see down here to that which is above. That's the Lord's will for you this morning. Now, both of those headings, I'll mention them again as we come to them, but right now, I want you to think about this. Is there not a sense in which Jesus never departed? Is there not a sense in which Jesus never departed? Before he became incarnate, before he came among us in flesh, He is, present tense, he is eternal God. And being God, he is omnipresent. Children, that means that he is present to every point in all creation, and he goes beyond. He transcends all creation. Jeremiah 23, verse 24 says, Can a man hide himself that I do not see him? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Everywhere you are, God is. Think of all the cells that you're composed of, all the atoms and the subatomic particles in those atoms. God is present to everything, and yet he transcends all things, being uncreated. 
Jesus is God. The eternal son is God. And so he can say, as he does to the disciples in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that is a great comfort to us. I think that's something that Christians, I I trust, most of us are accustomed to drawing upon. The Lord is with me. But we think of that in terms of his divinity. But there's a different set of benefits that come to us when we consider that he is not with us. That he is not with us bodily. Instead of thinking that as a disadvantage, the Lord wants you to think of that as an advantage. We'll see a little bit later, Jesus says in John 16, it is to your advantage that I go away. Your advantage that I am not present with you. So the first thing that we need to do this morning, the first main heading, is to think about the basic doctrine, the basic teaching of Jesus' ascension into glory. Look with me at verse 51. It says, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. He parted from them. If words have any meaning, the Holy Spirit wished to communicate clearly that according to Jesus' human nature, he left. He's gone. He departed. Elsewhere, Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot yet come. They wonder, is is he leaving Judea on foot? And he's saying, no, where I'm going, you can't yet go to. He's not here. Many texts could be brought out to demonstrate that. But here, I simply want to draw a connection to the Lord's Supper. I imagine that you're aware, but some of the children are probably not aware. There are groups of professing Christians who hold a very different idea of the Lord's Supper than what the Reformed tradition has taught and what I would argue the ancient Christian tradition has taught. You have groups who teach that Jesus physically is present. His actual physical body is present when you partake of the supper. You have the Lutheran view that says that Jesus' physical body is in, with, and under the elements of communion. You have the Roman Catholic view, which after at least 1200 came to be that The very substance of the bread and the wine is exchanged. It's transformed and in its place, but having all the same kind of outward sensibilities, you have Christ's very body and blood. So that's called transubstantiation, the transformation of the substance. But Christians have historically taught something very different. I want to demonstrate that, again, from the scripture, the plain sense is that he has departed. And yet we find, for instance, in the 4th century, the words of Augustine. Augustine, easily the most influential theologian after the Apostle Paul. He says in his commentary on the Gospel of John, in this very passage, he says, listen carefully, because I do state this in part for children and younger people as an inoculation against the claim that, oh, the church always taught this until Protestants said otherwise. He says, with respect to the presence of Jesus' majesty, that is his Godhead, Christ will always be present with us. But of the presence of the human nature, that is his humanity, what he said to his disciples holds true. But me you do not always have. For with respect to his bodily presence, he remained with the church but a few days. 
But now he is present to us by faith, not by sight. That could not be any more clear. The testimony of the church, up until about 800, was very unified. Christ, in his bodily ascension, departed. You can imagine, it's an imperfect analogy, but you've got a radar screen, and you're tracking an object, and suddenly it disappears. That doesn't mean it ceased to exist. You just don't have, perhaps, the ability to track it anymore. It goes beyond your technology. Christ bodily ascended. And yet, he continues to exist, though not here. This is what the scripture says to us. Now, pause for a moment. Ponder what that means about the heavenly realm. Again, we tend to think of heaven as this place that is unsubstantial, closer to an idea or a dream than to anything that has real substance. And yet, it is of such a nature that Christ in his glorified form is able to dwell there. He has gone ahead of us, and that gives us some sense of what we shall be. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I submit to you for your own study. The apostle says that that which was corruptible must put on immortality. He says that we desire not to be unclothed, as it were, to be without bodies forever. He says, but we desire to put on our new clothing, a nature like the resurrected Christ. I can't make you be excited, but I should tell you that this does excite everyone who by faith begins to consider what it means. That God's design for us, which has already begun to be realized in Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the new creation, is one where the heavenly realm and those things of this world are brought together in union, in joy. The ability to enjoy, not just in some intellectual sense, but with all of our created senses, beyond anything we've imagined, to enjoy God's presence and glory. And that is where Christ has gone. Now, can we be any more specific about where he was carried to? Remember, I said that Enoch, according to the book of Hebrews in Genesis 5, was taken up. But we should be more specific about where Jesus has gone to, because the Bible is more specific about where he has gone to. Hear what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Ephesians 1:20, God the Father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. At his right hand. Now, children, does God the Father have a right hand? Can he close it and open it like we do? According to scripture, not literally. He is spirit. And the Bible often uses these word pictures that draw on our experience to describe divine things. So the Bible talks about when God is angry, the literal Hebrew in the Old Testament says that his nose gets red. His idea of his flesh in the face. But this is an anthropomorphism, a describing of things according to the shape of a human being. What is being communicated? It should be pretty clear at the right hand. This is, in any kingly position, the highest position of authority, dignity, and honor. Hebrews chapter 113 quotes Psalm 110 where it says, it asks a rhetorical question. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? 
If any one of us saw even the lowest of the angels, I imagine that we would fall down as dead, struck with a grandeur of a being that is higher in order than what we have yet been. And yet Christ is raised higher than all the angels. As it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, but Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers all having been subjected to him. So when Christ is taken into glory, whatever that realm is like, he's taken all the way to the very apex. Now we often think of that in terms of royal power, and we should, and we'll look at those aspects a little bit more next week. But I want you to think something else in terms of the location. Where has he gone? Even as we sang in one of our psalms a little bit earlier, concerning the cherubim that he's above, under the old covenant, God gave his people, our people, we standing with them, all of these special object lessons. The tabernacle was itself a picture of things in heaven. Now, as you entered the tabernacle and only the priest could go into certain areas and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, you went both upwards, there was a gradient to it in the temple, and that upward sense was communicated even in the tabernacle as it was moving across flatland by these concentric circles of holiness. And it gave you the sense, kind of like a topographic map, of going upward, up the mountain of God. And in the most holy place, God allowed his presence to be manifested on earth in a distinct way. A blessing. Israel wanted that blessing with them. We don't want to go into the land unless you go with us, Lord. But it was also terrifying because he's holy. You perhaps were here last week and you heard our guest exhorter talk about Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. If the high priest went in and he had not performed all the rituals in just the right way, he would be struck dead. And this was to communicate to the church just how perfect a minister they needed. And then what was in that Holy of Holies? You have to picture this. There is the Ark of the Covenant representing the throne of God and two cherubim, and the presence of the Lord would appear above the cherubim. When Christ enters, he is going into the true Holy of Holies, into the holiest place in the cosmos. There is nowhere in all creation more holy and pregnant with the power the righteousness of God than where Christ goes. And he doesn't just come down to it like the cherubim. He goes up into the place reserved for God himself. And so he goes as a priest. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 says, Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. What kind of high priest do you have? The God kind of high priest. And yet wearing our very nature, that is a mighty thing to think about where he has gone into the very holy of holies. As we conclude this aspect of simply the doctrine, I want to address a question that 
Many have, especially some of the children. He's gone. Will he come back? This is a natural question. In fact, the book of Acts tells us a parallel passage to this, that the disciples remained looking up after Jesus was taken up in glory. And two angels appear and say to them, why do you stand looking up? He will return in the very way in which he went. Now in his time, and what does it mean in the very way? It means visibly and bodily. Visibly and bodily. He's not simply here through his church. A day will come when he returns. And when will that be? Children, when will that be? Do you know? I do know. And I think you should know too. And I I dare to say in a sense, I know pretty well close the day and the hour. Because scripture tells us in 2 Peter 3.8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. That is, Peter's responding to people who say, it's taking the Lord a long time to return bodily. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When will he return? When every last one of his elect people have been gathered out of the nations. He will not abandon his post. Though often we are tempted to, and sometimes individual Christians do abandon their post for long periods of time, Christ will not. And so where is he? He's in glory. When will he return? At the right time. This is the basic doctrine of the ascension. So much more could be said, and we'll touch on aspects of his royal reign next week. But we need to consider a little bit further. We need to explore, why does this prompt joy in the disciples? How does this promote joy in you? And this is what we consider now. I want to look with you at three different ways this causes joy. Now, I already mentioned that where Jesus went is the Holy of Holies. There's a priestly element here. And there's another layer of that in our text. Look at me at verse 50. Because this is the set of blessings highlighted by Luke in chapter 24. Verse 50, it says, And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. If you've ever been to this church, you've seen something like that before. It comes typically at the benediction. Also, sometimes in many churches, it's used at the time of confession and assurance of pardon. This is not something that a minister one day came up with. It comes from Scripture. From Numbers chapter 6, God instructs Aaron, the very first high priest over Israel under the Old Covenant, that when he is to perform his sacrifice rituals, especially on the Day of Atonement, that he is to lift his hands up in the sight of Israel and bless all Israel. The lifting of the hands is a potent emblem. It is to say, look, no weapons, coming in peace with love. It's a symbol of peace. And the blessing given by God to Aaron is one that is familiar to many of us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Jesus at this moment is not imitating Aaron. 
More than a thousand years earlier, Aaron was anticipating Jesus. Jesus is the true high priest. Picture it from the perspective of the disciples. They hadn't read Luke's gospel, right? They're experiencing these things real time. They don't know exactly what is about to happen. They're simply with Jesus, and they see him suddenly do something that they had not seen him do before. He begins to act out the part of the high priest. He raises his hands, and he begins to say these words. I would like to think, though we can't know for certain, the moment that he comes to the Lord, shine his face upon you, that this is when the heavens open. And they behold Christ being glorified, being received up. That is a mighty moment. You have to understand Christianity didn't just come because there were some convincing people who had a neat message for the world. They were supercharged by what they saw, Christ pronouncing the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord shine his face upon you. And then to see that light and to see him then as the high priest received higher than the angels and to know we have a high priest There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. If he is for us, who can be against us? The gospel is a mighty thing when you understand that Christ is interceding for you. Not by praying really, really fast. When it says he ever lives to intercede for us. In the King James, as a kid, I thought it meant like he's praying for all the Christians of the world really fast. That's how I took it. His presence is intercession itself. He goes to the right hand of the Father bearing blood, but he doesn't bring the blood of bulls and goats. What does it say in the book of Hebrews? Chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In the earthly temple, there was no place for the priest to sit. His work was never done. Christ sits down on the mercy seat above the angels. He says, it is finished. And so we have the joy of knowing that we have an advocate, a perfect advocate at God's right hand. That is a great benefit to us when you think that he, as a priest, even... All of those things were symbolic, but they're rich in meaning. He goes with blood, but it's not the blood of animals. It's the blood of the God-man. He goes and he carries it, but not in vessels of gold and silver. He carries it in a very body flowing, the veins coursing with blood, showing that he has power over sin and death and the devil. So that's the first and probably the greatest of these blessings that come to us. But then a second blessing is this. In fact, it's summarized in our catechism in question and answer 49. Hear these words. We have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will also take us, his members, up to himself. The second blessing here of knowing that Christ has ascended is that he will bring us to himself. He's at the right hand of God the Father on high. He gets what he wants. He said in the Gospels, whatever I ask, my Father gives me. And he asked for us, as it says in John chapter 17, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, 
It's a liberty, but go ahead and put your name in there. I do that. I desire that Michael also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What's the basis? Not your lovability, but the love that the Father had for the Son, and he desires to give his Son this blessing a people. And so we have the hope that we, when we pass, go to be with him until the final time. The third blessing is that even while we're in this life, we have the assurance that if he reigns on high, he sends forth his spirit. Remember, I mentioned earlier in the sermon, Jesus said that it's to your advantage that I go. John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away from you. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I want to be very clear about something. The Holy Spirit operated prior to what Christ is describing here. No one would have come to faith if the Holy Spirit had not operated. The book, uh, the epistle of Peter, it says that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. We know that the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. What is Jesus talking about? There is a difference in the degree of power, the degree of conviction that is experienced commonly by God's people from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There is a fundamental difference in our experience related to the ascension of Christ. You have something they did not have. We all, God's people in all times, through faith, are united with God in covenant and with the eternal Son as our mediator. But only after his resurrection and ascension can we say that we are united with him, not only according to his divine nature, but his human nature. We are united with the whole Son. And he, there's a word for this. As long as it's explained, I don't think it's wrong for you to use this word. The technical term, the theological term that you'll find in books, spiration. Spiration. Kids, you think of respiration, to breathe. In and out. Respiration. Breathing again. Spiration, in theology, is talking about God, the Son, sending forth the Holy Spirit in power to do what he desires. That is your only hope in life and in death that people come to faith. It's your only hope that you will grow and that you will persevere is that the Holy Spirit of life takes the very life of the resurrected Jesus Christ and works in you. That is a great blessing to us. As it says in 1 Corinthians 1.21, it is God who established us with you in Christ. It is God who has anointed us and who also put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Under the old covenant, when a high priest was anointed for the very first time, when he's just starting out on his, his work, they would take oil and anoint him. How much oil do you think they used? Maybe some of you have been at a church that practices chrism, which I in no way am endorsing. But they, you know, they take a small amount of oil and put it on a child. When the high priest was anointed, they took an amount that it was supposed to flow all the way down, it says, all the way down to his feet. Christ is the head of the body. We are the body. How can it be that he who has the Holy Spirit could not overflow down to us? You say, well, I haven't felt that much of that. I would ask you where you're looking. Are you looking to the Holy Spirit in Christ? 
I haven't felt much of that. Well, you haven't also, if you're a genuine believer, you haven't felt what it's like to not have the Holy Spirit in a long time. What would we be without that? If you don't have this joy, I suggest to you, place your eyes back where they belong. What are your eyes on? And I mean that literally in many cases. What are you looking at most of the day? Most of the day. The things, there are things that are necessary you can't take your eyes off of. You're doing your work. You got to do it. But especially in the time that God gives us as, for stewardship. Sometimes it's called leisure. Instead, I think we should think of it as stewardship. And part of stewardship is resting, but what do we look at in those times? Colossians 3, 1 through 2 says, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Set your mind on the power of the Holy Spirit. Look to who Christ is for you. When I want to rejoice, and I say this by way of moving towards conclusion here, sometimes I think about something. I'd encourage you to think about it as well. What is the experience of the saints in glory who behold Christ? Do you think about that? There was a time in world history when the number of professing believers was quite small. And the number of genuine believers was perhaps smaller than that. And so the span of time between their deaths and going into God's presence... I would imagine could be days, weeks, or months, maybe years, between different saints going into glory. Have you ever thought about that? But then as world population increased, so also has the number of professing Christians. Currently in the world, the, a major study from 2015 said roughly 31% of the world professes to be Christian. Whatever you do with those stats, 160,000 plus People die every day. That's a staggering statistic when you picture, say, three stadiums packed full and that many people are dying every day. If even 1% of those is in Jesus Christ, then that brings the tempo up to something like a soul every minute entering glory. And now imagine those saints from long ago dwelling in glory, worshiping Christ, and they see, however it works, I have no idea, they see the souls of the Lord's host being gathered. And as time marches on, we on earth sometimes look at, oh, it's, it's pretty, pretty bad, getting bad down here. But from their perspective, the number is increasing. The Lord is filling up his house. When it is full, he comes back. It is a it's a point of great joy for the Christian then to think, what am I headed to in my death? Not simply to not being condemned, but to reuniting with my people. Will you be among them? Will you be among them? If you have not repented of your sin, if you have not acknowledged that Jesus is the Lord because no one makes him Lord, he is the Lord, You simply submit to that fact. If you have not put your faith fully in him as your high priest, your mediator between God and man, then you have nothing but dread because you've elected to represent yourself. And he is a holy God. God has appointed that Jesus Christ shall judge the world in that day. 
The Lord calls everyone here. Repent. Believe on Jesus Christ. Trust that you are accepted. Even as it says in Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. If you have trusted that, rejoice. I say that as a command from the scriptures. Rejoice. The worst things that may take place in this life pale in comparison to those things which are for you in the Lord. And even those things which are hard in this life have been appointed for our growth and our good. The Lord calls us out of that to live an upward-oriented life. And he calls us even in this sign, this symbol, this sacrament here. Remember with whom you are united. It's tangible because he is tangible. He's not just an idea. He is the embodied Lord. That should give us great joy. Let's ask the Lord to help us in that even now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that you give and the testimony that you have preserved for us. We thank you, Lord, for the knowledge that Christ stands for us in your very presence. We pray that you would please renew us in joy and prepare us for greater service this coming week to live out of that knowledge. We thank you for this sacrament. We ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would ready us to commune with you in faith. Almighty and everlasting God, who by the blood of your only begotten Son has secured for us a new living way into the Holy of Holies, we ask, please, Father, that you would cleanse our minds and our hearts by your word and spirit, so that we, your redeemed people, drawing near through this holy sacrament, may enjoy fellowship with the Holy Trinity through the body and blood of Christ our Savior. Heavenly Father, we confess, as we've seen here this morning, that Jesus does not dwell here in any earthly temple, but is in heaven, continuing to intercede on our behalf. We ask through this sacrament, by your word and spirit, that these common elements would now be set apart from ordinary use, that they would be consecrated by you, so that just as truly as we eat and drink of these elements— which nourish and sustain our bodily life, that so truly we would receive into our souls for our spiritual life the body and blood of Christ. Father, we receive these gifts from you by faith, which is the hand and the mouth of our souls. And all God's people pray. Amen.